Sorry about the heat. The deacons are working on it. We're working on making sure it doesn't happen again. But we're Americans. We're so spoiled. I look at different missionaries here in the church who've served in parts of the world where they have no air conditioning, and it kind of cuts back on my complaining a little. Not a lot, but a little. Um, I, I, I read a lot of history. It, it's, it's become, which is odd, because I was a business school major. History was not um, a subject that I was particularly interested in growing up. And one of the reasons, I believe, was because of the way it was taught didn't connect with me. It was All I remember was we went from war, one war to the next. That's what I remember of history. Then there was this war, and then there was that war. And I mean, I, boy, I like wars. I mean, you know, boys have toy soldiers and all of that. We think that's fascinating. But it wasn't particularly memorable. And I, I don't think it's a great way to study history. I, I think a better way to study history is the way I've come to study it, and since I do it, I like it. And that is to, to study the individuals, the personalities, the, the great people of different eras and different nations. Because I think the great leaders and people reflect the very causes of those wars and other events in history. In other words, uh, when you just study that there was a war, that's one thing. But when you study the great leaders who brought, uh, came, brought that about, you get a sense of the values and the conflicts and the things that created those wars and created those movements in society. Because there's a weird thing that happens in history. We have leaders who reflect us, and we come to reflect our leaders. Now, that's a frightening thought, right? As pastor of Grace Bible Church, let me apologize to each one of you. But the, the, the reality is that, especially in democracies, um, uh, whom we elect reflects a great deal about who we are. And we are an incredibly divided country, very contentious, and you see it, and that's because that's who we've become as well. And, and so when we study great leaders of an era or of a people, we learn about the things in society that brought about those wars and those other things, those other facts that become significant. And I think it's interesting that that's the way the Bible teaches history. When you think of the Old Testament historical books or the book of Acts or the Gospels, the, the stories are basically centered on key individuals. They, they focus on the kings in the Old Testament or the judges, and you get to know those leaders, and that allows you to see through the window of what caused the events. And because who leads us is a reflection of who we are, and we become a reflection of who leads us. It's, it's one of the realities of humanity. It's also, I believe, now this part is free. I'm not going to expect you to pay for this because this is just my opinion. It's my opinion opinion um, that God has created us with an inherent need of leadership. All societies have governments. All, ha all societies have leaders. All, function all groups inherently move toward leaders. And I think he does that to teach us that we are made to submit to a sovereign God. We, are, we were made and designed to live in submission to a, a greater, more sovereign and, and so God created us with that human need so that in whatever culture, whatever nation, whatever time, there is always this function of leadership. And that's why leadership to me is such a fascinating subject. 
It's really a crucial thing. So uh, this year, I'm going to do some time. We're going to do some time together. Maybe that's not the right phrase, do some time. Uh, we're going to study together some of the historical stories of both the Old and New Testament. But rather than going marching through the books, we're going to look at some of the key leaders of that time because I think you can come to understand them better. And quite frankly, I wanted to start with the book of Acts, and the book of Acts is kind of boring. I mean, after, after the church gets started, they just, they just do one thing over and over again. They just go out and evangelize over and over again. I mean, it's kind of like you read one chapter in Acts, you've read them all. What's with that? So we're going to look at a key character in the book of Acts to hopefully get a better understanding of him. So if you will, turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. The first chapter of Acts is, if you'll recall, is when the disciples are shown awaiting Christ after his ascension and before he is raised up uh, to, to, I mean, after his resurrection, before the ascension into heaven. And Jesus gives his final instructions. In fact, there's a fascinating little phrase in there that says he had spent the 40 days teaching them about the kingdom of God. Wouldn't you have loved to have been in that, that class? Um, and then uh, the Lord in essence, repeats the Great Commission, Acts 1-8, you shall be witnesses for me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. And then he is ascended into heaven, and the apostles stand and look at each other and say, what do we do now? And uh, an angel comes and tells them, get busy. And then at the end of chapter 1, they elect a replacement for Judas. Matthias by lot because they knew that Jesus had spoken to the fact that the 12 would reign over the 12 kingdom, the tribes of Israel and they knew that was specific that was significant by the way I think that's one of the most significant passages to prove that even Jesus disciples after 40 days of instruction about the kingdom of God believed there would yet be a future kingdom for the nation of Israel just interesting chapter 2 is one of the most significant chapters in all of the Bible it's the story of Pentecost. And if you've been around church long, you know that Pentecost is not only, the name of one of, not only the name of one of the former pastors of Grace Bible Church, but it is also an event in, its, in the history of the church. It was a, a, sea, a special holiday for the nation of Israel, and it was when God chose to bring the Holy Spirit upon those who trusted upon him. And as the disciples came together, the Holy Spirit visited all who believed in Christ, and they spoke in tongues. And we always think of the tongues and the flames of fire, but the significant thing is that the Holy Spirit empowered his people in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies in a way that was unique from all times before. We also see chapter 2 as the initiation of that, that unit, that body we call the church. God had worked primarily through Israel, uh, uh, an ethnic group prior to that. Now, he brought people to himself outside of Israel, but he worked through the nation of Israel to do that. But in Acts chapter 2, he establishes a new organization, which we call the church, called out from all nations. And as the one that was called out from all nations, it became his body, his, his force in the history of humanity. And we believe he'll yet do something with the nation of Israel also in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. But for now, at the day of Pentecost, he established this thing we call the church, the universal church, which is manifested in local assemblies like ours. Everybody with me? Fake it. Okay, then in chapter 3, 
the church begins to go out, and, and, and you see, for instance, Peter and John healing a paralytic in, in the city of Israel, uh, Jerusalem, and ultimately they are called into the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the religious council that ruled Israel under the authority of Rome. Uh, Rome had given these religious leaders the ability to run their affairs just to keep the Jews from making them crazy. And, and honestly, it was just said, you guys do your thing and, and let us know if you need us. And so the Sanhedrin was the group that ruled them. And they were incredibly threatened by what was going on by this new thing called the church and these apostles, Peter, James, John, Andrew, and, and what they were leading, this way, this new way of working was threatening them out of their minds. So they called Peter and John in and they chewed them out and said, don't do that anymore and didn't do any good. And we're going to pick it up in verse 21 of Acts chapter 4 when Peter and John leave. After the Sanhedrin had given further threats, they let them go because they couldn't decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. The day of Pentecost was big news, made headlines in the daily paper and on the internet. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. In that day, that was really old. And the fact that he was healed so miraculously was big news for the community. And I want you to look in the next few verses and see what it says about the church was in these early days. What's the status of the church in Jerusalem? Verse 23. On their release, Peter and John, those two great disciples, went back to their own people and they reported all that the chief priests and the elders, the members of the Sanhedrin, had said to them. And when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Quoting from Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up. And the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. And they did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Notice he, he describes how the sovereignty of God works in all this. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And after they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, often in the Old Testament, a sign of the appearance of God in your midst. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God boldly. Peter and John leave the Sanhedrin, have all kinds of vile threats. They go back to the church, in effect, the meeting of other Christians, and they report what happens. And what goes on there? They pray. They, they come together and they pray. But it's what they pray that is really significant. Did you notice what characteristic of God is the emphasis of their prayer? His sovereignty. Men and women, when things are hard, the most significant and comforting and also uncomfortable doctrines about God is His sovereignty. Let me tell you what I mean. When things are hard, 
When you know things are going on that you can't control, when you know you're out of your depth, Peter and John know that the Sanhedrin is much more powerful to them. So what do they do? They say, Lord, you're sovereign. What is that saying? Lord, you're ultimately in control. A sovereign is a king. A sovereign is a ruler. A sovereign who is someone who has absolute authority to arrange things according to his perfect will. And so in submission to that, when they know they can't control things, then they instantly reach out to him because they believe he can control things. And that's one of the most comforting things that happens to all of us. When, when we're out of our depth, when we don't know what to do, we go to God and say, Lord, you're in control. And I see it because, because you gave your son and you, you, even though Pilate and the Jews and the leaders did things to him, it was all according to your perfect plan because it was a part of your plan for salvation. And I, I see how you're sovereign in that. And that sovereignty, that control is a matter of comfort for me. But let's be honest, it's also a very uncomfortable idea. Because we also want to say, Lord, if you're in control, why is this going so bad? I mean, if you're in control, you want to take some advice from me? I got a plan here. One of the things we embrace and we struggle with when things are hard is the sovereignty, the control of God. Because on one hand, we, we know that the only thing we can cling to is the fact that he is in control, but then it's hard not to question why he allows what he does. And that question goes to what is perhaps the oldest written manuscript in all the Old Testament, the book of Job, and throughout Scripture there is this constant struggle, Lord, why? Why do you allow the evil to win? Why are things sometimes so hard for the good guys? Lord, if you're in control, why? Notice that Peter and the church go straight to that issue. Because that issue tests the nature and depth of our faith. See, if God always, if he was our bellhop, if we could just send directions to God and he always did what we said, it wouldn't take any faith. He would just, you know, first of all, he wouldn't be sovereign. We would be. Uh, but, but secondly, it wouldn't take a lot of faith. We just, because anytime we wanted something, we'd give him orders and he gives them to us. But the problem is God won't accept that job description. The reality is that he alone is God. Scripture is very clear in that. He alone reigns. And all of us will ultimately submit to him. Book of Philippians. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, whether in heaven or under the earth. The reality is that the sovereignty of God is the very linchpin of who God is. And when things are hard, while it is a source of discomfort, it is ultimately the essence of what makes us feel better. Because if God can deal with with the evil of the world and is willing to give his son, then God will deal ultimately with the evil in my life and ultimately demonstrate his grace. So you, you see these people, these, these needy people coming together and saying, oh Lord, you're sovereign, you're sovereign and, and why do the nations rage? Why do people oppose your anointed? Anointed is another word for Christ or Messiah. In other words, they're taking Psalm 2 and saying it was ultimately about Jesus and these very leaders of Israel who should be clapping and parading in the name of Jesus, they're the very ones that are attacking you. Lord, 
Why does that happen? And look at verse 28 9. So this is the request. Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Help us do what we're called to do. Groups that have cohesion. Groups where the people are united. Groups that accomplish great things. Whether it's a nation, a company, a family, or a church. The deciding factor is unity of purpose. The deciding factor is unity of purpose. And when nations and groups and families and churches begin to fracture... It is inherently because they've forgotten what they're there for. The early church is robust and powerful because they are so clear about what they're there for. Verse 8 of chapter 1, you shall be witness of me in Judea. You shall receive power after that. You'll be witness of me to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost part. We were commissioned by God to take the message of the gospel. We were told by God to share with the lost of the world that in spite of all the evil, in spite of all the hurt, in spite of all the disappointment, God cares enough that he gave his only son to die on the cross, to pay the price for humanity, and that, that he is the answer to the, every yearning in your soul, and that that message is so powerful that we dare not ever forget that that's why we're here. But what happens to us? We get all confused. We, we think well, where the church is here to, to come on Sundays and see our friends and drink reasonably good coffee and and hear some reasonably good music and maybe suffer through a sermon or go to hear a good adult class. Or I mean, we make the list of reasons why we come to church and most of them surround our own comfort and our own enjoyment and we lose the fact that the primary purpose of the church is not for us. It's to serve Christ with the message of the gospel because that's why we're here. Somebody told us. Somebody met us in the brokenness and emptiness of our souls when we had become disillusioned with our own ability to be as good as we thought as well as the ability of others to live up to our expectations. When, when the brokenness of the human life had come to us in such terms we couldn't ignore it and someone said, I know the one who can meet that need. It's the Son of God. Jesus, born in Bethlehem, the, the very Son of God who lived a perfect life and, and died on the cross for the sins of the world and was resurrected on the third day so that whoever places their faith and hope in Him can have eternal life, can, can have their sins forgiven, can, can be restored and with an expectation of that ultimate salvation, that ultimate hope of eternal life with Him. That message is why we're here. We're not here here to sit in a pretty air-conditioned building and think good things about ourselves. We're here to be equipped to go out into the world and take the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ because we believe it brings healing. We, we believe that it, it, Jesus 
is God's means of making broken people whole and turning what is dead alive and restoring our very humanity to what God intended when he created it. And the early church was robust and powerful because they never lost track with that's why they were here. They never forgot that. Even in the midst of incredible pressure and fear that they would hinder your horrible persecution, what do they say? Lord, help us speak boldly of your name. In fact, let us do some miracles so we'll get everybody's attention. Powerful, powerful. Verse 32. So what does the story about Barnabas reveal? All the believers were one in heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of their possessions were their own, but they shared everything they had with great power. The apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. With great power, the apostles can notice they continue to speak of the resurrection of Christ because the resurrection is what made the nation take notice. Jesus was another teacher. He could do miracles, and that was all well and good. But the resurrection from the dead was the one fact that the, the, those who were around could not ignore. 500 saw it. They could debate all they want. They couldn't get around the resurrection. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy person among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to everyone who had need. And Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Okay, we're going to talk about money. It makes everybody uncomfortable. The doors are open. You don't, we're not going to lock you in. There are no pledge envelopes. It's cool, okay? But I want you to see something. When you care deeply about something, it affects how you spend your time and how you spend your money. In my family, I'm the spender. Julie is not the spender. Her, her parents made and lost huge money. She got to where she can live on nothing or make a lot, and she just kind of rocks with it. I, I'm really jealous. I'm the one that likes to buy fountain pens and other useless things. In fact, in, in fact, let me say, after years of working in financial planning, women get the bad thing about spending. That's because a woman will go to the mall and buy eight things and spend $200, and the husband will say, look at all the shopping she does. Well, he drove down the road and bought a $50,000 bass boat. But it was only one thing. See what I mean? So it's, it's not necessarily just women who spend. We all like to spend. It's a, because, and we spend on what we love. I'll never forget when we had our first grandchild. And I looked at the woman to whom I had been married for a number of years and said, who are you and where did you put my wife? She suddenly went through this maniacal change of love toward those little grandchildren. And that is the one area that I have to watch her when it comes to spending. I can see it when she gets on the computer when they're coming to town. I can see it. In fact, she bought toys for every day they visited us, plus a few extra ones in case their plane went down and they had to stay longer. We have toys everywhere just for the 10 days that our grandchildren were here because it's our grandchildren and she just loves them. She just can't help but spend money on them. Not so much with me, but she loves the grandchildren. Um, we spend money on the things we care deeply about. We just do. 
We spend our time and our money on the things we care deeply about. You can tell me all you want about what matters to you, but if I can see your credit card and, and checking account statements, I'll tell you what you really care about. Many of us, it's living in a great home. So we spend huge portion of our income on having the ultimate home, but we're tied and, and, and in servitude. Maybe it's cars or maybe it's our kids or, you know, whatever it is. It, it, how we spend our money shows what we really care about. And by the way, I'm not criticizing anybody for your homes. I'm just saying it's a reflection of our passions. It really is. And the early church cared about the church. This isn't a fundraiser. This is, I am not trying to increase tithes and offerings to Grace Bible Church. God takes care of that. I really believe that. But I'm saying how we spend our money is a reflection of what we really love. In the early church, they came to love each other so much that, and, and many probably lost their means of financial support because they had come to faith. So they just took care of each other. And if someone had a need and there was a need for more, they just sold something and paid for it. By the way, this church gives tens of thousands of dollars each year to members of our own church who are struggling financially. It's called our Helps Fund. It's administered by the elders. It's probably hit $100,000 this year. It's not small money. And that doesn't count all the money that I know is done outside of the church of people in grace caring for each other. I am not saying that we don't do that. I'm just saying that how you spend your money shows what you really love. Where you give your time shows what you really love. And so it's in the light of that that they raise the name of Barnabas because he epitomizes the very thing the church was. Barnabas' name means son of encouragement. He was a Levite whose family had lived in Cyprus. Interestingly, in the first missionary journey, he would go to Paul, with Paul and they would go to Cyprus because he knew people. He could have an impact there. Some believe that he was born in Cyprus but had studied in Israel with Paul under Gamaliel. It's possible. It's interesting that he had property to give because when God apportioned the land to the Israelites, the Levites weren't given any property. But by that time, I suspect they had ignored that, and he is apparently from a wealthy family and, and, and has means, and when there's a need, as a picture of what the church had become, he sold some property and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, he'll later be called an apostle, but, but he has no problem with submitting to other authority because he's already submitted to God. And, and because of who he is and what matters to him, he's just got no problem with giving of his stuff so that other people were cared for. Now, I'm not going to cover it because I'm out of time, but the, chapter 5 has a story about the perfect foil, the perfect contrast, the perfect uh, uh, person to show just how generous Barnabas is because it's a story of Ananias and Sapphira which, as an old fundraiser, let me say, it's my favorite passage in all of Scripture, you know. Um, no, it really isn't, because Ananias and Sapphira aren't struck dead because they don't give all the proceeds. And when you read the passage, you'll see they're struck dead because they lie about it. They didn't want to make the sacrifice of giving. They just wanted everybody to believe they were. They were all about show and not about reality, which is the threat 
that you and I have in our faith as well, right? We far too easily get worried about whether we look righteous, whether we look loving, whether we look like we serve Christ, and not near concerned about with whether we actually are that person. See, things don't change. We, we all struggle with the same thing. Um, but I've called the story of Barnabas a story about living generously because Barnabas is a man who is a picture of what the body of Christ was when it changed the world. He was a man that was so empowered and changed by the grace of God, so overwhelmed by what God had done to him that it flowed out in a generous lifestyle toward everyone else. And I like it because he's a layman. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, Barnabas and, Paul, Barnabas and I have to work for our living. As my old prof said, you know, we preachers are paid to be good. You folks are good for nothing. And the reality is that, it's an old joke, but I like it every time. The, the reality is that, that Barnabas is a man who, like us has been so impacted by the word of God that it changes his priorities it changes his passions and he's willing to do whatever it takes to live out the mission which God has given him which is take the gospel to the world around us because that's why we're here and when our families are broken apart our churches are broken apart when our nation is broken apart it's because we've forgotten why we're here and in the church while we're here is to take the message of Jesus Christ allow it to transform our lives so that we reflect it to God I mean to the community so that when we go tell others about him it has integrity because why we're here is to tell people about Jesus and Barnabas' life was generous because he just did whatever it take to make sure people heard about Jesus. And his actions and his sacrifices gave validity to what he said because Jesus had changed what mattered to him and he spent his time and his money on what mattered. I was telling people about Jesus. The church in America is weak because we've forgotten our mission. We think it's our comfort and our values and our happiness, but, but we're here to tell people about Jesus. Pray with me. Father, we confess that we struggle with this stuff. Some of us are just trying to get by another day. We have pressures that cause us to wonder what you're doing and sometimes we even struggle with your sovereignty because of it. But Lord, when we see your son hanging on the cross, when we imagine what it was to see him resurrected, we know that you love and that you're sovereign and have a plan and that if we conform to your plan, we'll tell people about Jesus. Lord, make us generous lives. Cause us to be liberal in our love. Make us a people that impacts the world because we're so in love with Jesus.
In his name, amen.